Lord, help us today to humble ourselves before your word, to allow your Holy Spirit to speak through this word that you have revealed to us. Um, and Lord, that it would impact us, it would shape us, it would encourage us, it would strengthen us, that we would see the gospel afresh, and Lord, that we would um, recognize, Lord, what you are seeking to instill in us or do in us so that we can be more conformed to the image of your son. And Lord, just allow me to be your messenger now and to proclaim your truth, we ask in your name. Amen. Thank you, you may be seated. As many of you know, this is a very, very um, um, focal time for the sport of soccer. And a number of soccer teams have been very, very much um, on display over the past few weeks. Um, but there's one soccer team that uh, I want to draw your attention to that are not playing in the World Cup. In fact, this soccer team is hiding out in a cave in Thailand. And these are a group of uh, 12 young boys, ranging from ages 11 through 16, who after a practice game went venturing and, and looking around with their coach and entered into a cave and then the monsoon rains came and they got stuck in this cave. And they got stuck in that cave on June 23rd. After a week, they were found and supplied with resources and food and some, some uh, protection gear that kind of gave them warmth. Uh, but they're having a difficult time getting these kids out. And um, one of the things that, uh, you know, that, that struck me in the context of this reality um, is just what's going on with these parents? I mean, can you imagine a parent and the anguish and the distress that they would be going through knowing that their child was in this cave, had been there for a week, and now was not able to be rescued because of the water levels and the danger of the rescue. I mean, I'm sure in their minds, in their hearts, they would be anxious, they would be torn up, they would be, we would use in an American term, freaking out about what's happening with their boys. Now, certain the boys wrote notes and said, hey, we're doing okay, we're healthy. They sent you know, greetings to their, to their parents and stuff like that. And experts from all over the world are descending there and seeking to get them out. My understanding is that some boys, even this morning, were able to be rescued, but there's still a whole bunch of them that are still in the cave. Now, as we come to our text today, there's something very familiar going on here. And the part that I want to bring your attention to is the familiarity with the distress and the anguish, in this case, of a spiritual parent for a church that God established under his care. You see, if you remember, Paul went to Thessalonica. He did establish a community of believers there. They had been there a while. They laid a foundation, but they were run out of town by these angry Jews they were persecuted out of Thessalonica. And sure, right now, as he's writing this letter, he's reflecting on his relationship with them. He has just heard from Timothy of their situation. And so he's, he's explaining why he sent Timothy. He's explaining why he's so concerned. But the, these feelings of distress, these feelings of concern from his heart are, are laid out for us in, in these few verses. You know, as, as a parent uh, concerned about children, you can just imagine him thinking, are they safe? Have they been deceived or have they abandoned the gospel? Um, have they suffered much at the hands of those who hate Christ? This was, this was an angry mob. These are people that were taking uh, believers by force and putting them in front of the magistrates. Paul, Silas, and Timothy having to leave was no small matter. And so what's happening with them? I'm sure these things are on their heart. You know, are they still following Christ would be one of the questions that I'm sure that they're asking. And so this morning I want to present to you um, what I consider to be the, the main proposition, and it focuses more on, on Paul and his relationship with this church, but then I want to kind of build on that because I, I want it to connect to us. I want us to think about what does this mean then for us as a church. And so let's begin by thinking about Paul. I think what we have here is the heart 
of the missionary for his flock. And I use the word missionary purposefully because Paul was a missionary taking the gospel to virgin territory, going into the synagogue, sharing the gospel. A church is birthed there and he has to leave. And and what's going on with that flock? He He is desperately concerned for them. I would also say that this is a church planter who is concerned for the welfare of the church established by God under his leadership. So this is very personal also. But for us, I would say this. What we have here is is an evidence of the kind of relationships that a healthy church longs for. A healthy church cares about others in the flock. A healthy church is affectionate. A healthy church is is genuine in its words of concern and its words of prayer. It is burdened for those that they may not be fully aware of what's going on in their lives. And so I think as we come to this text today, we're we're gonna be drawn to how Paul relates to this Thessalonian church. Now the the passage breaks down really into three sections. These are not your headings, but the three sections would be a missionary's concern, a missionary's action, and then a missionary's relief and joy. And we wanna pick it up then at the beginning. The first thing that I'm calling here is this, to be reminded, first of all, that they were torn away. This is the language that Paul uses. Verse 17, but since we were torn away from you, That's powerful language, isn't it? Since we were ripped away from you for a short time, in person, not in heart. But it begins here by saying, brothers. And this again is, is an intimate expression referring to both men and women in the church. And it is a, a familial turn. It's an affectionate turn. It's a family together in Christ. They are brothers, but they have been torn away. Literally what this means, they have been orphaned. Paul, as the spiritual parent, has been orphaned. This church has been orphaned from its spiritual parents. And of course, this whole idea of separating children from parents has been in our news recently, hasn't it? And people are all up in arms because uh, children at the border are being separated from their parents. And I know the whole thing politically is very, very complicated. But anytime a parent is separated from, uh, uh, from a child or a child is separated from the parent, it is a very distressing time. It is a very difficult time for that child. And so if, if a parent commits a crime and they have to go to jail, one of the concerns is we have to have the rule of law, but that child then has to go somewhere. But it's gonna be distressing for that child and the consequence for that criminal, one of them is not just the jail time, it's the implication on the children. Also, as, as marriages break up, one of the implications there is what happens to the children. They often become these pawns and this tussle for ownership. And the separation uh, from children from parents is devastating. And friends, these, these are all realities. But to be torn away is terrible experience for all, but it's most devastating when all the parties involved are innocent. And here's what Paul is, is getting at. He, Silas, and Timothy were torn away from the young Thessalonian church. They were persecuted out of the city. It happened quickly, suddenly, and it happened with great affliction. And although they were taken away, what Paul stresses is that they longed to be reunited with them. See, this is the kind of intense relationship that Paul had with the church, with the people of God that have been birthed under his care. Now notice, first of all, um, their longing expressed. And I use the word there because remember, this book is written, this letter is written by, by Paul, but it's from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. It says there, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. What we have here is a pile of words to describe their longing to be restored to them. Just notice here, they endeavored. I mean, there's action, activity going on. We tried, we tried, this is what we want, this is where our heart was. 
right? More eagerly, abundantly, again and again, with great desire, this passion of their hearts. This is what they could think about. This was on their hearts. This is what they were burdened for. It was all they could think about. So all these words together just help us understand the intense nature of Paul's heart and Timothy's and Silas' heart for the church there in Thessalonica. Now it's kind of like, for example, let's say one of, your, one of your friends, your best friend, is in the hospital and, and for some reason they're gonna be going through some kind of a major surgery and, and you wanna be there to support them but you've come down with the flu and you're at home and your heart, you're just frustrated. You're like, your heart's like, I want to be with them. I want to be by their side. I want to pray with them before they go in to surgery. I want them to know that I care, but I can't. That's kind of what's going on here. Paul loves these people, but he can't be there. Or maybe, maybe you're a person who's been to Bolivia before, and you've, you've made this connection with the Mohica family or Bible Baptist Church, and, and you want so badly to, to, to see them again and to be there, but there are things happening here stateside that are just hindering you from being a part of a trip or, or going, and so your heart is there, but you're just not able to do it. You, you long to, you want to. There's the affection, there's the desire but you can't actually be present to express what's on your heart. A number of years ago, uh, probably my first international teaching experience was when I went to Russia to a place called Kirojapetsk, which is about 14 hours southeast of Moscow by train. And I was there for two weeks, laboring with 30 young men who were pastors in in preparation for actually going out and planting churches. And uh, during those two weeks, we, we were knit together, we laughed together, we studied God's word together. It was a great experience for me. And I remember on the last day, just being overcome with the thought that probably 95% or more of these men, I would never, ever see again in my life. And these are, these are guys who are going into places like the Baltic Mountains. Even one of them was actually going back into the, the Chechnyan region, and there were they were passionate about going and serving God and establishing churches. And, and I had the privilege of, of having two weeks with them. And yet, on this last day, I'm just overcome with this. And there were, there were tears spilled at that time of goodbye. I remember leaving and the guys just standing there. Just, I mean, all of us were all just like bleh, a bunch of you know, blubbering guys because of the, the friendship that we had just during that time. And what a joy it would be just to to bump into one of them at a conference or maybe on a trip somewhere. I don't know, in God's providence, these things happen, but, but what a wonderful thing it would be. I, my, 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 my heart would say, if I could come to you, if I could say hello, if I could see your ministry, I'd love to do it, but I can't. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to help us as a church understand the intensity of what Paul is saying along with Silas and Timothy about their desire to be with this church. Church matters to Paul. Gospel matters to Paul. God's people matters to him. And it should matter to us. And so when there's a, there's a, a wrenching away of that relationship, it certainly causes distress. And then, uh, we talk about their, their longing that is explained now. Their longing is explained. First of all, he says here, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Now, we're not told specifically what it is that Satan did to hinder uh, their coming. It could be the fact that these Jews who continued on beyond Thessalonica to Berea and other places Their presence was so strong that they were hindering them from coming back. That's one possibility. It's a possibility that Paul's thorn in the flesh, whatever it is, was a means of of opposition that that Satan was was using. Um, But all that would be speculation because we're not told. What What we do know is that Paul and Silas and Timothy wanted to return, but somehow there was an obstacle. And I think what he's saying here is not so much specifically Satan physically came and hindered us, but this general opposition to the, the, the progress of the gospel that was going on in some way, shape, or form. But they desired to be with them again and again, but they were hindered by Satan. And of course, Satan is always seeking to hinder the growing um, 
uh, development of the kingdom of God. But when we think about the person of Satan, we do need to be reminded of a couple of things. Um, the, the first thing I think is, is important for us to understand is this, is that we open the pages of God's word, we find out that Satan is real. Satan is not just some figment of our imagination. Our, our uh, you know, Western worldview that is shaped by the Enlightenment is, is very unsympathetic to any reference to Satan or even the supernatural. They see any reference to Satan is kind of like a, a symbolic thing of opposition. They don't, they don't recognize any reality of the presence of Satan. But here's the problem. Here's what you run into. If you're going to be shaped and fashioned by Western society and you come to the word of God, you're going to find out that Jesus believed that Satan was real. And so if you're going to brush Satan aside, then you have to brush Jesus aside. And you have to say, this word of God is a bunch of nonsense. But if you're going to embrace Jesus, if you're going to recognize the, the Bible for what it is, you're going to have to recognize that Satan is real. The second thing that I think we need to recognize, though, although that is true, um, Satan may be real, but Satan is limited. He is a creation of God. He is not omnipotent. He is not omnipresent. He is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything you're thinking. Now, let me just pause here. Satan's been around for a long time. He's a student of human nature, so he knows the kinds of things that you're thinking, and more often than not, your actions, your words, and, and what you choose to do reveal what's in your heart. But he is not like God, all right? He is limited by God, and God in his wisdom and providence has created him to be a means of his accomplishing his purpose, his being God's purpose. God works his will through Satan's thoughts and desires that he is undermining the kingdom. Why do you think Jesus went to a cross? You think Satan was happy about that? Absolutely. Had no idea that he was doing the will of God. Satan's always, always, always under the total control of God. That's why he is called the prince of the power of the air because God gives him freedom to roam and to go wherever he so chooses but always under the careful observation and control of God of God our Father. And friends, that should comfort us. Can I just say this? Don't allow Hollywood to paint your picture of understanding of who Satan is. Let the word of God show you and teach you that. And always be reminded that, that God is far greater than Satan. Not just because he's far greater, he created him. And there's nothing that Satan can do that is out of God's control. So if Satan hinders you in some way, shape, or form, you know what? You say, okay, God, I'm gonna trust you. I'm not gonna worry about him. I'm gonna trust you because you are working through this plan and you are completely in control. And friends, it's helpful to be reminded of that. So they were hindered by Satan. That's a reality. We run into those things. But not only that, he's also saying, you are our glory and joy. Look at verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown or boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? He's saying, when I stand before the Lord Jesus on that day, when I stand before him and I give account when I stand before him and we look at the things that God has accomplished in my life through the ministry that he's given me, you are going to be my joy. You are going to be my crown. That's what he says in verse 20. For you are our glory and joy. Yes, Paul went on this missionary journey, but remember Paul initially went to go build up the churches in the Bithynia region, but while he was out there, there was this call it a Macedonian call, to go now to the Greek territories of Macedonia and there not build up the churches but preach the gospel and see churches established. This was God at work, but God works his will through servants. In this case, it was through the apostle Paul. And so yes, Paul planted the church, but we recognize that it was God planting the church through Paul, right? So, so Paul here is not kind of like saying, you know, I'm sinfully boasting about you. 
He is intensely proud of the Thessalonian church, but he is also recognizing that it was God that birthed the church, but God also discipled the church through him, Silas and Timothy. And that's something to, to be thankful for. Now, I know if you drive around Castro Valley, you're going to run into, hopefully not literally, but figuratively, you're going to run into a bumper sticker that says something like this, my child is an honor student at XYZ Elementary School. Now, I know some of you have the bumper sticker that says something like, my child will beat up your honor student, or something like that, right? <laughs> now, but I, I want to recognize here that, that, you know, sometimes you can read those things and you can say, boy, those parents, they're just really arrogant. But what are they, what are they, what's the purpose of all that? The purpose of that is to say to your child, listen, I, I want to recognize your accomplishments. I want to, I want to reflect on those. I want to encourage, with you, encourage you to keep on doing well in school. I don't just think, I mean, it could be. It depends on the heart of the individual. I think the point there is to say, you know what? I, I want to recognize you. I want to honor you for your hard work. And I think what we have here in this text is Paul saying, when we stand before God on that day, I want to say to God, God, you have done a good work in this church, and I rejoice that I was a part of it. In fact, what Paul says about the Philippian church, Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, he says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And on that day before the Lord, Paul can boast about what God has done. He might receive a crown, a crown that would be a crown of honor, a crown of celebration, a crown of rejoicing from God. But just like any God-centered believer, he is going to take that crown and he's going to hand it back to God in worship because he's recognizing that it is God that has only worked through him. He's simply been the vehicle. But there's something right then about this kind of, of honoring. This is not self-serving kind of activity. This is God honoring boasting. And so this is what's going on. We've been torn away. We wanted to see you. Satan has hindered us, but you are our glory. You are our joy. You are our crown of boasting. I mean, these are, these are deep, heartfelt statements. But now notice what he says next, chapter three, verse one. He says, therefore, based on what I just said, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy. Now I want you to notice that in verse one, Paul says we could bear it no longer, and then in verse five he says, I could bear it no longer. And we're gonna, we're gonna get there, but just notice those two things. This is a letter from Paul, Silas, and Timothy, but then Paul is gonna kind of step aside and give some more personal feelings about his attitude toward these believers. This is a missionary's heart that is unable to contain itself. He's describing their hearts as a dam that cannot hold back the water of affection and concern for those who are his children. So this, this dam is so full of concern for their well-being that they're willing to be left behind, they're willing to be separated. The word literally here is to be abandoned. And so they're willing to be abandoned for the sake of, of hearing about finding out about the welfare of the Thessalonian church. Now, they didn't have Facebook back then. You couldn't log on and put a blog up there and say, hey, everyone here in Thessalonica is doing fine. Let's do a selfie. Woo-hoo! Right? It didn't happen that way. You remember what it was like before we had all that technology? It was pick up the phone. And before that, it was write a letter, and you wouldn't hear back for maybe a month or more. What's happening? How are you doing? And so Paul is is saying, listen, we, we, we could only handle this so much. We could not bear it any longer. He says, so we sent Timothy. <laughs> we're, we're willing to, to stop and to pause in our missionary journey. We're, worn, we're willing to, to, to have Timothy abandon us for your sake, to send him to you so that we can find this out. Again, you just get the heart of what's going on here. 
Paul is concerned. He has to know. He loves these people that he's poured himself into. Now why Timothy and not Paul or Silas? Why is it they send Timothy um, instead? Now we're not told. Here are some possibilities, just some things maybe to consider, to think about. You know, Paul as the leader and the main instructor would be a much more visual impact. A lot of those people would know who Paul was. They may not recognize who Timothy is, and so maybe he could kind of sneak in. The other thing, if you remember, is um, Paul's mother and grandmother were Jewish, but he was the son of a Gentile. So maybe he would able to be able to slip in, maybe due to his looks, due to his dress, due to the culture, Whereas Paul was a Jew, you know, and he could be clearly seen and identified. So there may be some things like, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us, but what he does tell us is that is I'm sending Timothy. But notice what he says here about Timothy's credentials. Notice how he identifies Timothy here. He says, our brother, our brother, not just Paul, Silas, and Tim, uh, Timothy, not, not just that connection, but he's our brother. He is one of you. He's one of us. He's a fellow child of God. Not only that, he's God's co-worker in the gospel. So in this short amount of time, when, when Paul brought Timothy in, onto this team, because that's when he picked him up, was, was just a little while before this, he is already recognizing the value of Timothy as part of that team and one who can faithfully represent him. That's pretty staggering, just in the short amount of time that we have here. So Timothy is being sent by Paul with authority from God, and he is working for the gospel as God's co-worker. Those are his credentials, but his concern here is twofold, to establish and exhort them in their faith. Now just think about what those words are. To, to, the word to, to establish is to build upon a solid foundation. In other words, Timothy's first goal was to go back and to cause the structure that had already been laid to be more secure. Again, Paul not knowing their condition, worried, as we'll find out, about the fact that maybe they had been tempted away, maybe that, that persecution has caused them to kind of abandon the faith. And Timothy's going back then to, to build them up, but also to exhort, and the idea there is to encourage the believers to live out what they know, even in the midst of affliction. And of course, this leads into the second concern, that is Paul wanted assurance that the Thessalonians are not moved by their affliction. So he's concerned that they may not endure. He's concerned that they might give up on the faith because of the struggle of being God's children in a hostile context. And then notice what he, he begins to do there in the latter part of verse three. He begins what I always want to call a theology of affliction a theology of, uh, of understanding what it means to suffer because you are a follower of Christ. He says, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Destined for what? For the suffering and affliction. For when we, are with, when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. Just as it, is, it has come to pass, and just as you know. In other words, this is kind of lay these things out. There's three of them that he really says. Affliction comes with the territory. If you are gonna be a follower of Christ, you are going to suffer persecution in some way, shape, or form. It just comes with the territory. And Paul is saying, listen, and this is what we told you when we were with you. Welcome to the body of Christ. Now you're gonna suffer. Right? That's just the reality of it. And it's just honest to say that. And not only that, he's saying, and you saw this played out. And he's referring back to the fact that they were persecuted out of the city and that they received themselves some persecution by the hands of those who were chasing Paul out of the city. And just notice then that, that Satan and, and affliction followed Paul wherever he went. This opposition was there, affliction, hardship, were always there. And friends, Christianity today continues to face similar affliction and opposition from Satan. On the world scene, um, it is a bold opposition in many places. Places like Laos, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Sudan, Pakistan, 
Indonesia and China. It's only dangerous to be a believer. In some places, it's illegal to be a believer. And it's certainly illegal to share the gospel in many of those places. And it may result in harassment. It may result in church burnings. It may result in fines or arrests or ostracism of some kind or imprisonment or even death. Now, I want you to think about this this next one. You know, the World Cup is is a big deal for the world right now. I mean, I don't know how many people in the world are watching the World Cup. I mean, if there's a TV in a country somewhere and there's a game on, guaranteed people are huddled around, they're watching. Well, one of the teams that made it to the World Cup is the team from Egypt. But the Egyptian coach had this particular official position, only those who practice Islam will be included in the national team. You didn't hear that on the news, did you? Can you imagine if a European team said, listen, only Christians or those who identify with Christians can play on this national team? The kind of outcry that there would be, the kind of buzz there would be all over the media and that kind of stuff. I'm just sharing that to say this, that that this persecution is real, it's happening, and sometimes it's happening by the silence. In our comfortable Western context, affliction comes in more subtle ways, doesn't it? Christians are marginalized as people whose opinions are irrelevant and therefore unimportant. Their their opinions are irrelevant because who could believe that nonsense? And if you believe that nonsense, then you really can't think straight, and so why should we even listen to what you have to say? Or Christians are vilified as being hateful because they love integrity, the sanctity of life, or many other things. Or Christians are mocked as ignorant because they are people of faith and not of science. Of course, then you have to push the science community to say, well, listen, even some of your basic premises of science have to be exercises in faith. Now, these are just ways that culture is kind of putting the screw on believers. In more specific circumstances, Christians face suffering because of their commitment to gospel principles. Here's just some things that, that just came to mind as I pondered over this. An honest employee is fired for disrupting a company's plan to scam consumers or for blowing the whistle on corruption and fraud. You face losing your job for standing up for what is right. A law enforcement officer is ostracized and pushed out of line for a promotion by her fellow officers because she refuses to lie in order to cover up misconduct by another officer. A high school student experiences hostility from students and teachers because they speak out against a school-wide political protest that they cannot, with a clear conscience, participate in. A teacher receives harsh criticism by parents who are demanding that their child be given a grade higher than that child earned. A believer who, is, who believes in keeping the law is mocked and treated as hateful simply because they believe in an orderly society. Now friends, th- those are not all perfect illustrations, and my point is that there's this tension out there for believers now to, to fudge on their convictions because society doesn't like the integrity that comes with the gospel. And as a result of of we who want to hold up biblical principles and biblical truth, we can be looked down on as kind of these ignorant people who are stuck in their ways or who are not willing to get with the program. Paul summarizes it in Romans 5. He says in verse 3, we rejoice in our suffering knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
friends, you and I will stand before the Lord one day and our desire in standing before him as imperfect but blood-covered people is to say, we have done our best to live our lives with integrity, even though the world around us thinks it's stupid or fudges in their integrity but calls it integrity. My friends, persecution doesn't always have to come in hard ways. It can come in little soft affliction twists and turns in the context of just normal, regular, everyday living. But it comes with the territory of being a believer. And so, so Paul is, is, is just reminding us here, and he's reminding the Thessalonians, listen, yes, we were snatched away from you, and yes, we've sent Timothy because we wanna hear about your situation and what's going on with you, but remember, this, this suffering, this affliction that you're experiencing is not something that caught you off guard. We told you about it. it, it happened in front of you. You knew this was coming. And still, Paul is concerned about them. So this is why it says now in verse five, for this reason, not we could bear it no longer, but I could bear it no longer. I sent to learn about your faith, is what he says, right? He says, I sent to find out what was going on with you. So I sent Timothy to you, and so what's on his heart beyond what he's already said? He wants, first of all, to be assured about their faith. In other words, Paul is concerned that the faith expressed in the Thessalonian church is genuine. It's the real deal. Secondly, it's to assuage his fears that the tempter has tempted you, or that, that, that my labor in Thessalonica for that time that I was there would be in vain. Now friends, this is the heart of a parent. I want you to think of it in these terms. You, you, as a parent, you lay a biblical foundation. Yes, in your home, you're, 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 you're taking them to scripture, you're modeling scripture, you're talking about God in the, in the, in the, the ways of life. You're coming to church together, you're reinforcing it by your example. It's imperfect, but the times when you catch yourself, you seek forgiveness and restoration, you're trying to live that life in front of your children, but there comes a point in time when that child gets to the place near adulthood and they go off on their own and there's this lingering question there in the heart of that parent. And here's the question. What will be true about my children's faith? Will they fall? Will they give in? Will they turn away? Will they reject? Will they be overcome with temptation? Paul has a genuine fear about their genuine faith. Will it prove to be real? Will it endure? Will it be revealed in their lives, even in the face of affliction and distress? Paul is, he's not just like, oh, we planted the church in Thessalonica, let's move on to the next place. See how, how tied he is to these people that he's poured his life into. So sending Timothy was what they agreed was, was needed. They, they all needed to know that the Thessalonian church, what, what they were doing. So Timothy was sent as God's co-worker. Now what's interesting here is that expression describing Timothy as a co-worker is the Greek word synergen, which is the word we get the word synergy from. Synergy is two groups working together and the working together ends up being better than those two groups working apart. And so there's this synergy that's going on now with him going back, this partnership in the gospel and sending of Timothy brought about the news that Paul so desperately wanted to hear. So they were snatched away or taken away, they were abandoned, but now what we're gonna find ultimately is that they were comforted. They were comforted specifically by this good news. And it is good news. But now that Timothy has come to us, big transition, now that Timothy has come to us, he's been to you, we sent him, now he's come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. 
Friends, this is, this is good news. This is, this is, first of all, good news about their faith. It was strong, it's active, it's growing, and it was, it was built on a well-laid foundation. Now, I'm getting some of that stuff from some of the other texts around here that Paul refers back to the reputation they had in chapter one all around the region. Their faith was on display, and their faith was an example, and people were following that example. But not only their faith, but their love. It's solid, it's enduring, and it's setting an example for others. But even with that, their memory of Paul, Silas, and Timothy's ministry with them was a, was a, a fond memory in such a way that they, they, they thought of us kindly is what he's saying. There's a deep sense of affection for Paul, for Silas, for Timothy on the part of the Christians in Thessalonica, which then is expressed by this last statement, they long to see us as we long to see them. This is, in other words, their longing, their, their passion, their affection for Paul, Silas, and Timothy was just the same as Paul, Silas, and Timothy's affection for them. The feeling is mutual. And so when they, they come together, when they realize that Paul is concerned about them, when Timothy comes, he experiences then this, this joy of affection from the body of Christ there. It's good news, it's also comforting news. Notice how he says this in verses seven and following. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, Paul's saying, we've, we've been through it, we have been comforted about you through your faith. And notice what he says now. For now we live. I want you to think about that, that expression. This is, in other terms, a big sigh of relief. The news has come to us and <sighs> you guys are doing great. You're healthy, you're walking with God, your faith is strong, your, your love for the gospel is, is on display. This is not only good news, this is comforting news. This is not a, a life that is physical living. This is, a, this is a life that's describing their fulfillment because of the gospel as co-laborers in ministry. This is, this is the kind of, of life that comes when you hear the good news of, of God's faithfulness to people in different places you've been praying for. And the, un the understandable anxiety on the heart of Paul and his companions is now changed to comfort because of this news. And like I said, it's not just that they're okay, but it's that they're living out their faith in the city and the region and doing all of that for the glory of God. Now friends, this, this morning, I checked the news again about these, these boys. I think I mentioned it earlier, but uh, last time I checked, four of the boys have been rescued, and I think four sets of parents have gone, ah, but there's still boys in the cave. Now, the, the point here is this. There's, this, there's this depth of affection that Paul is expressing here to find out this good news, to hear this good news. They are now able to live, they're able to, to rejoice, they're able to, to go on now with the things that, that God has called them to, but there's a condition here, what we live, if you're standing fast in the Lord. And certainly, they were standing alone as God's children. They were standing alone in the face of affliction and distress, and they were standing fast in the Lord. That's what we, we find was true about this Thessalonian church. This is an expression that Paul uses a number of times um, in his letters. Many times, in the English language, he translated standing firm. Just Follow with me as maybe as I read a few of these to kind of get the, the, the gist of what he's talking about. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13, it says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. So you, you get this tension that standing firm is fighting against this, this spiritual bondage. 
Philippians 1, 27 and 28, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So there's this kind of standing fast or firm together. Again in Philippians Chapter four, verse one, it says, therefore my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, sounds familiar, doesn't it? Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm. Second Thessalonians, chapter two, verse 15, so then brothers, stand firm and hold the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, let's just kind of summarize then. What does it mean to stand firm in the Lord? Just pulling from that. It means standing on the right foundation, first of all, which is the gospel. And it's the gospel and its implications that, that, that cause us then to live our lives in a certain way. Standing firm means standing against the enemy, standing against Satan and all those who would be his followers. It means standing with the right attitude, having a perspective that God is seated on his throne, he is completely in control, and that, that our, our lives are rooted now in the confidence and the certainty of eternity, which is kind of the backdrop to this whole letter. Standing uh, firm also means standing with endurance, rooted in the providence of God, that no matter what's happening, God is in control, and he is working out his plan. It means standing with a clear identity. You are rooted in Christ. You are a child of Christ. You are part of the body of Christ. Friends, this is the gospel. And this is what you stand firm in. You don't abandon the gospel. You don't abandon your identity in Christ as you are facing affliction. You stand in it. And you allow him to be the one who carries you through. It means standing with full trust in the Lord, it, it, it is a, a standing that is rooted in his revealed word. And friends, I can't say it enough. God has revealed his word, not just to give us some ideas about life, but to give us life. To help us not only to, to understand the gospel, but help us to, to, to live our lives as those who are followers of Christ. Not just some principles for a living. We live and breathe the gospel and its implications every day. And this is what we're called to. Are we standing fast in the Lord? Is that something that you would say is true for you? Now let me bring this down to a close. There's three um, implications, or three realities that I just wanna draw your attention. I think this, this passage causes us to think through a little bit. Number one, it's this word relationships. First of all, you know, developing and cultivating your relationship with Christ is of primary importance. Knowing the gospel, understanding the gospel, seeking to understand how the gospel shapes your life is a vital part of your own growth in Christ. But, but secondly to that then, as the body of Christ, what is it that you are doing to cultivate relationships in the body of Christ? You know, when we have a fireside chat, whether it's the men or the women, or we have a home group, or if it's a Bible study, or maybe it's the table for four activity, or maybe there are conferences that are going on, or there's the sync team meeting, or there's a membership class, or something like that. All of this is cultivating this in the Lord stuff. All of this is, is a means by which we're developing and growing in our relationships together. Church was never supposed to be some cold place. You just walk in, you sing some songs, you listen to a sermon, and you leave. Church is a body of called out believers who are living life together for the glory of God by virtue of the strength that comes from the gospel and the word of God that's been revealed to us. Our relationships are critically important. So consider the words that you use, words of affection, words of appreciation, words of affirmation. Also consider the, the ways you greet one another. I enjoy going to Bolivia. 
Ron, why don't you come up here? It's your, your last day. I can use you any way I want. <laughs> so uh, this is how, this is how you, you greet, greet another guy in Bolivia. And this is news to you, right? Yes. Right? Okay. So shake my hand. All right? And then, all right, do that. There you go. And shake my hand again. All right? That's it. And you go around to every guy in the room, and you do that. So I'm sitting in, in the airport at La Paz. The guy's there at the conference. They, they, there's a few of them there to see me. There's some ladies that are there too. And um, Chip James, who's a missionary from um, out of Alistair Beck's church who ministers there in La Paz, happened to come by when we were at the airport. He comes by and he goes by every guy, just you know, doing this thing, right? You know, boom, 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 all the guys. And then the ladies, and what do they do with the ladies? Oh, we're not gonna demonstrate this here, but you go up, you give a nice kiss on the cheek. Sometimes it's a fake kiss, you know, you just go like that, but you're actually not kissing, you know what I'm saying, just rubbing cheek, right? But there's something very warm and affectionate about that. And then when it's time to go, guess what you do? You do it all again. So you, you, you've gotta go to every person and shake their hand and do this thing and kiss them on the cheek and all that kind of stuff, and then you leave. When I was in Russia, I had a very similar experience, a little different. They shake hands a little differently, not the same as in Bolivia. They do the kiss on the cheek thing. Apparently in some places in Russia, the men kiss kind of like a little bit more aggressively, um, um, which I'm glad I didn't encounter, right? Um, but friends, you, you, you know what we typically do here in the States? Hi, how are you doing? And it's usually like, Uh, friends, can I just say this? There's something about what Paul says even in this book of 1 Thessalonians. Look at chapter 5, verse 26. If you don't get anything else from this passage, or from this sermon, this is what you need to get. It says, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. By that, I do not mean smack them on the lips. I, I think the tone of this is, listen, yes, it fits with the culture, but let's be an affectionate church. Whatever that looks like in the context of Gateway, let's love one another, let's be affectionate toward one another, let's, let's give appropriate, right cultural affirmation, physical affirmation, whether that's some kind of a hug, whether it's a high five, whether it's a good handshake, whatever it might be. But friends, let us not lose that, let us cultivate, let's reinforce that. That gateway would be a place where relationships are being cultivated, relationships are being uh, established. So the question is, do we need to grow in our understanding of an expression of affection? Or maybe to put it a little differently, how much of our American or Bay Area culture is hindering us from being the kind, or building the kind of relationships that we long for as a church? It's a fair question. My, my first time in California, I went to my wife's church in, in Oakland, Hispanic church. I went back to Michigan afterwards and they said, how was it? I said, I've never been hugged and kissed by so many women in all my life. <laughs> and it all happened in church. Right? It's culture, but there's a warmth that is there. And what I'm trying to get as this, this essence of, of warmth, and, and I just, we, we need to constantly ask ourselves the question, how are we doing with that? Secondly, readiness, readiness. Are you being built up in the faith? Now, I'm not saying, are you going to more Bible studies? Are you just going and filling your head with more knowledge? I'm not talking about that. But are you being built up? Are you, are you purposely attending church, being a part of things for the, for the purpose of growing and establishing and reinforcing those things that God has been doing in your life to, 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 to dis disciple you, to mature you, to, to build on the, the, the foundation and on, the, on the, the trusses and on the walls and all that kind of stuff of your life? Are you encouraging one another in the Lord? Are you ready to stand alone if need be. I mean, if you were snatched away in some way, shape, or form, and you had to stand alone, could you, would you, 
And are you equipped in such a way that that's what you could do if you had to? See, being built up isn't just to pack your head full of knowledge. Being built up means it's practical application as well as knowledge, understanding how this works, being a follower of Christ. So when we talk about having training, we even come to church on Sunday, we're trying to build up the believers for the glory of God, trying to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's what it's all about. But, but next to that would be, are you cultivating, are we cultivating a community where those who must stand can find refuge and rejuvenation in the gospel? Friends, it is hard to be a believer out there. Now, I'm not out there like you guys are out there. I'm, I'm a pastor, I meet people, what do you do? Oh, I'm a pastor. Oh, okay. You know, you're working normal jobs and doing things and you're interacting with people and you know, oh, what do you do? You know, and I go to church and say, oh, you know, and it's, it's a completely different context and it can be a war zone out there. And man, we want our church to be a place where people can come from the, from the labor of the week and just kind of like, oh, so good I can be with you guys and I can just talk about what I've been going through and we can be praying about it and we can, we can together just find strength in the Lord. Are we a place that that can happen? We need to cultivate that kind of, that place of refuge. And then we need to come together as, as J.D. began our service with that whole one another section of 1 Corinthians 12. Are we cultivating a synergy for the gospel? Are we cultivating this idea that, that everyone who is gathered together as part of the body here is all working in some way, shape, or form for the benefit of one another? We're all gifted in different ways. And in one sense, we're all dispensable, but in another sense, we're all necessary as part of the body of Christ. And so however God has wired you, you might think, I don't really have much to offer. You're a child of God. You have much to offer the body of Christ because God has gifted you. So find that place. Find that that means of, of living out your faith as the body of Christ. Are we ready to do that is the question. And I just, you know, the way, the way society's going, I think we're gonna be more ready and more ready and more ready and, and less kind of like, you know, just kind of riding this, this wave. I think we're, we're gonna have to do a little bit more paddling now. And the wave might overcome us. So there's relationship, there's readiness, and finally there's reward. Aren't you glad for reward? <laughs> Now, in a biblical sense, the, the, the reward is not like, oh, look, I, look at all the stuff I have, right? That's not it. We don't have to be like Cristiano Ronaldo who has yet to win a World Cup at everything else. When we get to heaven, we are all going to experience reward as believers. Now, certainly there are some unique ones identified crowns, identified for, for pastors in particular or those who minister the work, but that's all simply saying, God, you were the one who did that, and we, we see that in scripture, but listen, we are all gathered around the throne praising him for what he has done. It's a time, yes, of some sadness because maybe we have failed in some areas, but it's also a time of rejoicing because even in those failures, God is glorified because he is the one who accomplishes his purposes in spite of our weaknesses. Now, who is your hope? Who is your joy? Who is your crown? Who is your glory on that day of the Lord? Paul is speaking to a church about the church. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your friends. Maybe it is your church, as Paul is using that expression here. But Paul is longing for a spiritual concern about a physical group of people that he loves. And one day he will stand before the Lord and he will give account and he will rejoice over what God has done through him in bringing about the birth of this church and the establishment of this church and the growth of this church and the impact of this church. But Paul's not gonna He's not gonna say, well, see, look how great I am. He's gonna say, God, look how great you are. And I am proud to have been a part of that. There's something right, there's something healthy, there's something good about that. 
Friends, this is God's church. This morning, we've taken some time to say goodbye to Ron and to Tracy. Ron, we're gonna miss you. We love you, brother. Um, it's, it's hard saying goodbye. We've, we're saying goodbye to, to, to J.D. and Thea, although they're not leaving yet. And that's hard, but it's good, and it's right. And part of the reason it's hard is because of the depth of relationship and affection that there is in the body of Christ. If it didn't mean anything to us, then why are we even here? Let us be this kind of church. Let us learn from what Paul is saying. Let us, let us grow in our affection and love for one another and allow the gospel then to work through that to accomplish its purposes in us. Lord, there's much for us to learn here today. Many of us, if not most of us, have lived comfortably as your children in the body of Christ. We've not suffered persecution like we see here in the New Testament. We suffer forms of affliction and cold shoulder or being neglected or put down, but Lord, nothing compared to what we see here. And so, Lord, it's easy for us just to coast. But, Lord, may we not be guilty of that. May we allow your word to to strengthen us, to fashion us, to move us, to cultivate God-centered relationships in the church. And, Lord, that there would be such an affection for one another. The the testimony of gateway, not because we're we're, we're kind of this selfish, proud people, but but because we want to honor you, Lord, with our lives, that, 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 that our little church would be an example. And Lord, what we're saying here would be true among us, that you would be glorified in our relationships, that your gospel would be taught, preached, and be the means by which we're building up one another in the faith. And Lord, we, we just commit ourselves to you And allow us, Lord, to be what you've called us to be, we ask in your precious name. Amen.